You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. From Steven Spielberg, director of Close Encounters of a Third Kind, Poltergeist. Contrary to popular superstition, hauntings and poltergeist incidents do not necessarily occur in old, dark, abandoned mansions. They can occur anytime, any place. The house looks just like the one next to it, and the one next to that, and the one next to that. And yet, it's special. It is inhabited by a young couple. Their three children. And something more. Poltergeist is a German word. Geist meaning ghost, polter meaning... So poltergeist is a noisy ghost or noisy spirit. There's no simple answer as to why these phenomena occur. At first, like a child, it simply wanted attention. At first, people are just puzzled by the phenomena. Soon, it became inquisitive, experimental, mischievous. Furniture topples over. Objects fly around by themselves. Vases may be shattered. Fires may spontaneously break out. Most of the time, there's a particular person that the events seem to focus around. It grew restless. The initial outbreak will terrify the family. Then it became frustrated. They are typically violent. Hostile. Apparitions have been reported. Angry. It can be violent, vicious, and destructive. And now, its focus is clear. As of yet, we don't know how to control them. Its form is revealed, and the games are over. Next summer, the unknown will be revealed. Visible will be seen. Poltergeist. The first real ghost story. everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to go in two different directions. First up, we have Ghost Directors and Alan Smithy. These are two terms that you might be familiar with when it comes to filmmaking. With Ghost Directors, we're going to explore some of the directors that somehow, sometimes, take credit or maybe are forced to take credit for films that they might or might not have directed. I know this sounds weird. And with Alan Smithy, we're also going to explore directors that definitely don't want to take credit for whatever it is that they just 
did. Uh, so that's an interesting, weird little subgenre or subtopic of filmmaking. And then we're going to jump to posters of the month with two more Star Wars posters that I recently acquired. Kind of offshoot posters, not, you know, very well-known posters. But again, if you're a Star Wars nut like I am, you, you might have seen these before. So let's first off start with our ghost directors and Alan Smithy. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, on today's topic, we are talking ghost directors. And by that, I'm talking about films that might not necessarily have been directed by the people we think directed them or the people that were given the credit for directing them. And I'm trying to concentrate mainly on, you know, more contemporary films and talking about the 80s and the 90s, that kind of stuff. Because obviously, there were probably many, many more films you know, in the past, like in the in the in the fifties and the sixties, even, you know, that might kind of fall under that title. Now, a, a ghost director could happen for many different reasons, and it's not always exactly the same. One of the most talked about ones is the movie Poltergeist, who was directed by Toby Hooper the director of the famous Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the rumor going around, a lot of it, is that it was really Steven Spielberg who directed it. So you got to keep in mind, this is the early 80s. Spielberg is about to direct E.T., I think. And right before he gets to work on that one, you know, he gets involved in this project. He's the executive producer, more or less, of this of Poltergeist. And from what I understand, he was putting together all the storyboards, you know, he knew exactly how he wanted this film to look. He just wanted, he just didn't want to direct it himself. So he hired Toby Hooper. And it's funny because a lot of the, the way in which we, we kind of reconstruct the possibility that it really wasn't so much Toby Hooper, that he was more of a hired gun to do exactly what Spielberg wanted him to do. A lot of it comes from the behind-the-scenes footage, where there's a lot of footage of Spielberg kind of talking to the actors and prepping things. But it could be said that, well, that's because he was the draw. He was the big-shot director who was producing a film, so he might have been getting all the attention, even behind the scenes. But when they talked to some of the actors, they kind of started to get the feel that, yeah, Spielberg was directing a lot of the shots and the scenes and prepping things and telling, you know, Hooper exactly how he wanted them to go. So it, it kind of remains as a, um, uh, you could call them or urban legends, maybe, you know, Hollywood legends, Hollywood ghost stories in a way, you know, ghost directing stories. But yeah, that's a tough one. The other reason I think uh, some people mentioned also was that because Toby Hooper had the reputation for being a very hard R 
horror director, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is something on its own. It's a super important film in the horror genre that some people would even suggest that it was kind of promoted or leaked on purpose to make people feel that, well, you know, this movie is not that crazy horror. It's Spielberg really directing. So, you know, kind of like, don't be afraid to come see it. But something tells me that, no, this was Spielberg stepping into the producer role and and kind of stretching his muscle to, you know, experimenting to see how far he can kind of oversee a film uh, while still letting a director take the credit for it. Next up is Tombstone. Now, Tombstone is not... I mean, Poltergeist is a movie that I've seen a million times. Tombstone is one of those modern westerns. Not my favorite of all of them, but definitely a very important one because of the cast. They had an amazing, unbelievable cast. Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell, Charlton Heston, Billy Bob Thornton, Dana Delaney. You know, it had just about everybody... You know, hot actor out there. One of my favorites, Bill Paxton. You know, you you name it, they were all in this movie. And I remember that this movie also, I think, might have came around the same time as Wired Earp with um, Kevin Cosner. So I think there was this dual, uh, dueling, uh, same stories being told kind of movie. <laughs> the same time that I think, like, wasn't, like, Deep Impact and... Armageddon, <laughs> they were kind of coming out at the same time. It was something like that. But anyway, this movie, from what I understand, the controversy surrounding this film was that the, the, the film's original screenwriter, who was also the director, named Kevin Jar, and I believe he was probably, he might have been the same person that wrote, I think, Glory. So that was his, uh, you know, his street cred, and he was about to now direct a film. And something happened within the first, I don't know, couple of weeks of, 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 of shooting where they fired him. And all of a sudden, they bring in George Cosmatos. Now, that's a name that film genre fans, especially Stallone fans, should be very familiar with. Well, years after this movie comes out, as a matter of fact, right after, like the year after... George Cosmatos died. Kurt Russell, I believe, gave an interview, kind of setting the record straight that he was kind of like the ghost director of this film. Uh, that the, the the makers of the film approached him to direct, you know, once they fired the original director. And he didn't want to really do it in, in a way where he didn't want to take credit for it. But he was willing to take the challenge of putting the film together, you know, come up with all the shots. And he said that what he did was he called his friend Sylvester Stallone. And here we go. Because those two had made, was a Tango and Cash or something like that. And that uh, he had, you know, he remembered that Stallone had mentioned, I guess, in the past that he had used... Uh, some directors, or specifically this particular one, George Cosmatis, to be able to kind of direct films that he didn't want to necessarily take on as a director, but he wanted somebody to basically direct him exactly the way he wanted to be directed. So that's apparently, according to Kurt Russell, what happened. He ended up 
uh, doing the film. He would feed Cosmatos all of, you know, the night before, he would feed him all the shots that he wanted to take, exactly how he wanted to do them, and that's exactly what he did. And he ended up getting, you know, Cosmatos ended up getting the, the director credit for it. So that's an interesting, I mean, I never, I remember that I never thought that Kurt Russell, you know, was involved in directing in any shape or form, but this is apparently something that he, um, you know, he admitted he'd done. Now, speaking of George Cosmatus, the first time I probably heard his name, which was uh, something just out of nowhere, uh, was when I saw Rambo First Blood Part 2. Rambo First Blood Part 2 is one of my favorite if not my favorite Rambo film, because it's in a way, and, and I, and you can kind of say, okay, it's because of the writer. Rambo First World Part Two was written by James Cameron. And in a way, you kind of see what he did for Rambo is exactly what he did for Aliens. You know, with Aliens, you have a horror movie, and then you have an action movie. With First Blood Part Two, you have an action movie, a super, super action action movie which was followed which followed the original first blood which is more of a heavy drama with action in it but it's got more dramatic elements and you can see the the shifting of the gears of how this sequel was different and what was interesting at the time is that i would i would say to myself well hold on a second somebody to for somebody to direct this movie they must be like super excellent directors and i really didn't know at the time that cosmetos was you know involved in anything else or had any kind of track record but once again you know when you start to kind of piece together the story of tombstone and there was always this underlying thing going around that stallone when it comes to some of i mean stallone directs but sometimes when he doesn't direct the rumor mill always talked about how he takes over that he just completely takes some directors and completely overshadows them and tells them exactly what to do. And it doesn't seem to be so much anymore, uh, from what we understand, that it's just his personality that comes out out of nowhere, that no, he purposely hires some of these directors because that's the understanding, is that he wants them to be able to do the, the directing work, but he's exactly telling them how to direct. So in a way, Stallone himself is the ghost director, you know, of these films. And that's exactly uh, apparently what possibly happened, you know, with George Cosmos. He was like a, he was the, the guy that they bring in to direct a film that somebody doesn't want to take credit for, which again, I don't know if it's something that it was thought of a risky thing that Stallone didn't want to take a risk of directing, you know, First Blood Part Two. Or he just didn't want the hard work of having to be the director while behind the scenes he can tell the director exactly what to do. It's, it could be a combination of both. Who knows at this point? Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is a weird one because, uh, first of all, it's a great movie. I love the movie. But I never really knew that there was some controversy, you know, hidden there about Kevin Kosnick, which... He, you know, he won the best. He won the Oscar for the best film of the year. I remember that. Man, do I remember that! Um, I was actually in California during the Academy Awards, uh, which is another whole story for another day. But the rumor going around apparently was that Cosner's friend Kevin Reynolds apparently helped them direct the Buffalo Hunt scene sequence, and. You know, a lot of people were wondering, you know, how much more did he direct other than that? Uh, so there was already some kind of a connection between Kevin Costner and Kevin Reynolds. 
And that was, you know, I, I don't think you could kind of have enough proof that he directed more of the movie, uh, but he does admit to have directed, you know, at least certain sequences of the movie. One of the most famous ones that we probably talked about in the past that has a similar controversy as a lot of these Stallone films is Return of the Jedi. As we all know, Richard Marquand was the director, but there was so much information out there about Lucas directing certain sequences and Lucas telling Marquand exactly how he wanted him to do certain things. You know, Richard Marquand did not become such an independent individual as Irvin Kirshner did. And I believe, you know, granted, if you look at the history of how these films were made, you know, Lucas does Star Wars all by himself. He's exhausted to the point of practically a breakdown, you know, uh, makes himself sick over, you know, worrying about everything, having being producer and the director and every, you know, he's doing everything. And then the second time around with Empire, he kind of lets the reins go to Irvin Kirshner and Irvin Kirshner takes over and does things his way. And because Lucas is away from the directing portion, you know, he's not very happy with the the money being spent, which ultimately resulted in uh, him and Gary Kurtz parting ways as as his producer. So I guess at a certain point, he decided, right, I'm going to make the third film. I'm still not going to direct because it's still too much of of a hassle to direct. But this time around, he didn't give... Marquand as much leash as he gave Kirshner. He didn't give him as much freedom. And there are many reports that, yeah, that that during the production, Lucas was uh, on set many, many times doing exactly, you know, what he wanted to do. And he also had way, way more control over the editing process when traditionally a director gets to you know, cut his own film. In this case, Lucas is the one that kind of took over the supervision of the editing in terms of what he wanted. And that also was one of the reasons because he wanted certain shots uh, to be done his way while production was happening. This way on the edit side, he could cut things exactly the way he wanted them cut. So yeah, that was a very, uh, that's a very interesting one. A lot of people think Lucas did a lot more than than he was uh, giving credit for, obviously. Waterworld. This one is a weird one because it kind of brings back the original story we were talking about with Dances with Wolves. Here you have a a reverse kind of situation where Kevin Reynolds is the official director. But as we kind of know from the history of the making of this film, they had a lot of problems in the shooting of the film. At a certain point, the director gets fired or quits. You know, it's still unknown. And Kevin Cosner has to take over and finish the directing of the film. So again, this is one of those situations where you're not sure exactly how much of the original vision is there and how much of Cosner's vision is there, but Reynolds did end up getting the full credit for it. Now, even though I said I wasn't going to go into the super older films, there is one, just one I want to talk about, and that is The Thing from Another World, you know, the original The Thing, obviously the, the Howard Hawks version. And it's funny because when when everybody hears the thing from another world, it's Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, you know, the famous, super famous, you know, movie producer. And you almost forget who the director was. His name was Christian Nibby or Nibby. Not sure exactly how to pronounce it. And apparently, this is one of those situations where, yeah, the producer had so much clout and he was such an imposing figure that... A lot of times, 
he kind of overtook things. And, and even the style, a lot of people say, of how this film was shot was more to look like typical Howard Hawk films. So uh, there's a lot of back and forth between ex-actors who worked on him, where some of them give more credit to one guy than the other. Some say it's more the director, some more says the producer. So that's one of the ones that kind of goes back and forth a lot. Some of them might say that the, you know, the director was the one calling the shot, and some might say that the directors always went to the producer to see if he would, he would approve of certain things that he wanted to do. So, yeah, that's one of the, the, the biggest ones you know, from, the, from, the, from the 50s, and again, from classic, classic science fiction. Cobra, another Stallone classic, <laughs> more or less. Yeah, this one is, um, again, when you first watch these films, you don't make the connection right away. And once again, the director is George Cosmatus. At the time, you're thinking, wow, this guy's just incredible. He's done Rambo, and now he's doing this. You know, granted, this movie wasn't that great, but it is kind of a heavy, heavy action film. And while you still kind of get the feeling that, and the rumors are kind of flying, that, you know, Stallone, and during the shooting, he was all over the place, and he was calling the shots here or there. You know, it, they never made a big deal out of it. But again, granted, once you get that tombstone story from Kurt Russell, and the fact that Stallone is the one that recommends Cosmatus to Russell because of the work he's done with him, and here you go. Here's another movie where, yeah, Stallone probably said to him, and keep in mind that Cobra came after Rambo. This was he was on a roll. He was having super action success at the time. And he kind of, I guess at that point, he was he kind of found this little niche of being able to put these movies out without having to have, I guess, the responsibility of directing. But in all reality, behind the scenes, having the director who does everything that he wants done. So, yeah, I guess contractually and because of the rules of the, of the Directors Guild of America, you know, a lot of these situations, they have to figure out who to give credit to. And, and yes, he was a gun for hire. And he does get the credit for it. But it kind of makes more sense that, yeah, no wonder these films look a little weird in terms of their very Stallone-ish films. And it's like, yeah, okay, so he's really directing with a ghost director right there and you know, on the set. Okay, earlier we also mentioned James Cameron. We were talking about uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two. With Cameron, you also have another weird situation, which is kind of like a reverse of everything we're hearing right now. Cameron's first film was called Piranha 2, The Spawning, which when you watch this film, it's a horrible horror film. Apparently, from what I understand, you got to remember, this was his first film. So he was doing some schlocky, schlocky script kind of stuff. And apparently, two weeks into shooting this movie, he was fired. The producers didn't like him, and they got rid of him right away. And then they hired another person to complete the filming of the movie. Now, for some reason, they kept Cameron's name on the uh, credit. They gave him director credit, even though they were, he was fired and somebody else finished it. So at the time, you could say it was a fluke that they let him keep it because normally they might have not wanted to keep it, you know, as a punishment for somebody they just fired. However, the movie turned out to be a complete bomb. It was horrible. But... In future releases, video releases, home video releases of the film, they, it's touted as James Cameron's, you know, from the maker of Terminator, from the maker of Alien. You know, 
they tried to capitalize on the fact that he was the director on it, even though at this stage, it probably could have turned into one of those Alan Smithy scenarios where there are times where directors don't want their name on a film, and it is at the end called an Alan Smithy production. This used to happen way in the past with directors would get into fights with producers and would want the names removed, you know, from their motion pictures. So again, this is a completely different backward kind of scenario. Another one that we have mentioned in the past, as a matter of fact, I think we mentioned it not too long ago, maybe the last episode, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Rogue One follows more of the original trajectory, but in terms of it being a good film at the end, at least in my in my perspective, I think it was a great film, you know, the way that it, it ended up being. But apparently, yeah, I think the third act was completely changed. There was a different ending for the film, and Gareth Edwards ended up kind of handing off part of that end to a different director. Now, this other person that was brought in to do the third act was Tony Gilroy, which, again, from what I understand, he's redoing the whole third act. The end of the movie was changed. Not only was it changed, but they also added the additional Darth Vader scene on the Blockade Runner, which was an amazing sequence, which granted it's fan service, but it was great fan service. And to me, it made the film even better. Again, this is one of those situations where it works. And because it's Star Wars and Disney, you know, you're never going to get, at least for a very long time, the how and why exactly things happen. You know, how did Edwards agree to or was forced to kind of give the reins over to someone else to do these uh, reshoots? Not sure exactly how that works or how everybody agreed to do it, but apparently it did happen. The final ghost director film I want to mention is Dread. Now, Dread, as you guys might remember, is the second version of Judge Dread, not the Stallone Judge Dread. This is the the the, the other Dread. <laughs> now, granted, this is a movie I absolutely love. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on video, and I was blown away. It is also one of the first 3D films I think I might have seen on TV, you know, on a television. Great film, but apparently there was rumors going around that the director towards the end of filming or the beginning of the editing process was apparently fired and that the screenwriter slash producer of the film Alex Garland who is an excellent director these days <laughs> ex machina uh, annihilation uh, you know you name it he's 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 done some fantastic work lately he apparently took charge and uh, supervised the post-production process. And some people are also saying that maybe he actually might have directed some of the film too. Now, as the film was coming out, now, now granted, in, in a way the film was somewhat of a bomb. It didn't make the kind of money they wanted it, even though it is a cult classic and, and it's still in the process, right, even to this day of possibly one day getting a sequel to it. There is an interview that Carl Urbane gave talking about how he gives Alex Garland so much of the credit of how good the film actually is, basically saying that he actually did direct the film as far as he's concerned, uh, which is really, really interesting that he would go that far, you know, into into crediting him, even though officially it still gets credited to Peter Travis. Now, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes directors go the Alan Smithy route, and that is, there is a process, I guess, more prominent in the past where you can actually can have your name removed from a film when you're 
experience is so horrible or or your relationship is so bad with the producers that you want to completely disassociate yourself from that film. The movie American History X, uh, directed by Tani Kay, excellent, excellent film. But unfortunately, behind the scenes, apparently the director did not get along so much with Edward Norton, who is a notoriously very difficult actor to work with, that at one point, I believe that he was actually removed from the editing process, uh, the director. Uh, and he tried to get his name removed from the film, but I don't think he was successful at it. Another movie that was had a very uh, contentious relationship between the director and the producers was Fantastic Four, uh, directed by Josh Trank. Yeah, this movie... Ended up being a pretty pretty bad movie, let's say. But yeah, behind the scenes, there was a lot of, of fighting going on where the movie uh, at a certain point gets more or less taken away from the director and they have to then do reshoots, you know, against the director's wishes. Another one that comes to mind is one of my most hated films in the world, Alien 3 by David Fincher. This film had a lot of production and post-production problems to the point where the film was taken away from Fincher's hands and re-edited to be made to come out the way it did. You know, Fincher was always uh, trying to distance himself from this one. And I honestly don't know if his original vision would have been any better because I dislike this film so much. But yeah, this is one of those situations where the director tries to completely step you know, away from the finished product as much as possible. Dune by David Lynch, a very relevant movie now because it's being remade by the director of um, Blade Runner 2049. I've talked about Dune in the past. David Lynch had a, a very difficult time. He apparently didn't get final cut of the film. So the, the final version of the film is something that was constructed, you know, by the producers. Furthermore, they've done multiple edits of the film, especially for home video. Uh, there was an expanded cut, I believe the Sci-Fi Channel aired it, and every now and then it airs somewhere, where Lynch apparently successfully managed to uh, be credited as Alan Smithy, uh, as the director of this expanded cut. I'm not sure exactly what qualifies or what grants a director that status that they are actually able to completely disassociate themselves with a film. Not the theatrical cut, but the, the, the this home movie, you know, extended version uh, of it, it is credited to Alan Smithy. Once again, the moniker of Alan Smithy is something that doesn't get too much notice these days. It's not that big of a deal, uh, but it used to be uh, something that would show up a lot more often in the past. You know, if you do a search for Alan Smithy films, you're going to find a whole bunch of artists that all of a sudden, that whatever it is that they did, it gets credited uh, to Alan Smithy. And sometimes it might even fall under television credits or music video credits. Uh, you know, they sometimes... Uh, I guess these type of things happened in just about everywhere and and you end up with, you know, something that the director doesn't want to really take the credit for. And a lot of times as it's happened, uh, you know, with with Dune for example, it has a lot to do with not having the editorial final cut privilege rights when e either you never had them to begin with or all of a sudden as a result of something where the studio or the producers are not happy with the work, they kind of take it away from the designated director. That uh, seems to be at times what triggers these 
attempts at removing one's name from the film. So it's really interesting how we go from directors that are claiming to do something because they're hired to be the name and directors who are trying to distance themselves from something <laughs> because they are so embarrassed by the uh, finished product and, 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 and most times from the interference that they get from you know, production or studios or that sort of thing. All right, we are returning to our posters of the month. And surprise, surprise, we are talking Star Wars. Uh, by now, you guys probably figured out that I, I have a thing for Star Wars. And the uh, two particular posters, the first one we're going to hit is what's better known as the birthday poster, the Star Wars birthday poster. Now, what I'm talking about here is a picture, because this isn't something that was drawn. This is a photograph turned into a poster, which has a birthday cake with the Star Wars logo and one candle on top, and a whole bunch of Kenner action figures all around the cake. And the poster reads, May the Force be with you, one year old today, on the bottom. This is a poster that I had never seen in person. This is a poster that was designed for the one-year anniversary of the release of the film. What was happening at the time was that, surprise, surprise, the movie was a complete blockbuster to the point where some theaters were actually still playing it a year after it opened. So by the time you get to the end of 77 and you, and this thing doesn't seem to be stopping, you know, they're, they're planning on something. And the design that was uh, chosen for this particular poster was done by Tony Sanger. He designed the concept of the poster. What he did was he ordered a cake from Cake and Art, which is a West Hollywood bakery. And he ordered, you know, give me a cake. And, you know, we want to put a Star Wars logo on top of the cake. And he also designed, you know, putting around it, instead of using like a lot of birthday candles, what you would on a regular birthday cake, just put one candle on the top, but accent the edges of where the, I guess the surface of where the cake is sitting with 11 action figures. The photographer was Weldon Anderson, who took the actual final shot of this. Now, there are a couple of little, I guess you can call them Easter eggs or trivia or fun facts, if you will, about this, this particular design. One of them is that the action figures are almost all of the first 12 action figures. Now, you got to remember, timing-wise, what we're dealing with here. Star Wars comes out in May of 77. Action figures are not ready. The early bird kit is sent out for people who want to start getting figures, but that is not going to happen until 78. Right around this time, right before, you know, right in the beginning of 78, you start to see the figures coming out and you're dealing with the first 12 figures. Now, why is it that we're missing a figure here? If you look at the poster carefully, there seems to be missing one figure, and that's the Jawa. Interesting selection of why, you know, leave one out. According to certain interviews, it says that the reason they left it out because of his size, it would have been aesthetically, you know, unbalanced or unfitting to put a small Jawa there because most of the other figures are large. However, when I look at this figure, the center point of the figure is R2-D2 and C-3PO. So you do have a small figure there already. Now, for 
aesthetic purposes, once again, uh, you, you think to yourself, well, couldn't they just have, just have put the Jawa on the other side of R2-D2? This way you balance the two smallest figures in the front. Well, I think they put the figures more or less in the order of importance to the story of the film. So, for example, up front, like I said, you have C-3PO, R2, Luke and Leia, Ben, Darth Vader, Han... And then you have um, uh, Death Squad Commander, Chewbacca. And then in the rear, you have a Stormtrooper. In the other rear, you have a um, Sand Person, Sand People, Tusken Raider. Yeah, the Jawa, as far as importance to the story, would be somewhere in the back. He would have been somewhere, I would say, behind Chewbacca, uh, most likely. Because they do seem to have, to, to, you know, if if they're trying to line up all the Imperial guys on the right side in terms of importance, and then you have the good guys primarily on the left side, let's say, with the Tusken Raider, because I guess the Tatooine connection, that's the Tatooine connection right there. What's What do they have in common on the left? They're all from Tatooine. Luke, Ben, Han, Chewie, and the Sand Person. They were all characters introduced in Tatooine. Yeah, the Jawa most likely would have been either behind the sand person or in front of the sand person. And yeah, I can kind of see how by placing the Jawa there, it would have gotten a little bit lost. It would have been a little missing back there. And that's why R2 seems to be, when you look at the poster dead on, not exactly in the middle. Because again, if you place him right in the middle... You're kind of giving him maybe too much importance in terms of, I mean, you figure Luke would be the middle because this is Luke's story. However, the droids are the ones who are kind of narrating, not narrating, but telling the story when you really, really think about it. So it's incredible the amount of thinking that went into (laughs) how to place these 12 figures that eventually became 11 figures. Personally, I would have put it anyway. I would have put that Jawa in there anyway because... I'm a completist uh, when it comes to collecting, and 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 I don't want to leave anyone out because they are legitimately the 12 first figures. Now, granted, at the time, nobody was thinking the way we think now in terms of these figures. Again, I'm talking about collectors here, people who care about these toys, about how important it is, and not to diminish or or, or you know any of their importance. The 12 first figures are the 12 first figures, period. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like gospel. <laughs> you can't deviate from it. But yeah, that's, that's, ex- that's apparently why they did it. It was, it was a matter of, of placement and they couldn't figure out how to place them in a certain order uh, that would not just get lost in the background. The other thing, if you think about it also, which might or might not be a big deal, is difference in colors. You don't want to have a whole cluster of, let's say, dark or black or gray on one side and a whole bunch of white or orange on the other side. So if you take the Jawa and you put him between Chewbacca and the sand person, you got a cluster of very brown colored figures all on one side. You know, it's good to have Ben separated by Han Solo and then Chewbacca, because if you put Ben and Chewbacca together, then you have too much of that red brownish colors you know it, it spreads out the color palette a little bit more and yeah that's another thing yeah i mean believe it or not i don't i've obviously i've never thought about this so deep <laughs> but what's amazing is that they, they probably had this conversation you know when they're trying to figure out how to do this how do you know something as simple because if you think about it this is a super simple design this isn't like 
rocket science. This isn't like you're hiring a an artist to render something from scratch, from coming up with 75 different concept sketches and then narrowing it down to 10 and then selecting which one and then, you know. No, no, this, this is a pretty simple, I imagine was supposed to be a very simple job. Now, as I mentioned before, these posters I never saw. I didn't come to the States until 79, the end of 79. So these posters went out in May of 78. Again, one year anniversary. And only to selected theaters or, or selected locations that were important, I guess, to the uh, to the release of the film. The fact that the film was still out a year later. For younger people listening to this, it was a different time back then. Nowadays, a movie comes out and it's out there for maybe two, three weeks. <laughs> If you're lucky, and then it's gone, and then two months, three months later, it's on on demand, on streaming services after that, on DVD, on cable, on, you, on Netflix, you name it. It's it's there. It comes, it comes pretty fast back at you nowadays. Back in the Stone Age, when I grew up, no, you saw a film, it was out for a while, maybe a couple weeks, and then... That's the end of it. You never saw it again until it was either a very successful film that they could do a re-release, maybe a year later or something like that, or a couple of years later, it would find its way to network television. It was a big deal. Oh my God, they're going to they're gonna air Star Wars. Star Wars is coming to television or Star Wars is coming to cable even later. You know, it was a big deal. You know, that sort of thing. Now, later, a couple years later, yes, you do have the video market start up in the, in the early 80s, early to mid 80s. So that kind of started changing things to, to, you know, closer to what we have now. But you're talking about the 70s, you know, uh, for a movie to be out for a full year was insane, a completely insane concept, as it would be today. A movie today is, a, it's impossible, I think, for it to be out for a full year. It, it, it would, it just doesn't make sense. So, yeah. This is uh, May of 78. I wasn't even here, so I never got to see this poster in an actual movie theater. The first time I saw it was probably on the internet or on some of these books that I own. It's like, what the hell is this? Birthday cake? Star Wars? What's going on here? But yeah, the poster, like I said, it does have uh, – that's one interesting little little tidbit about the, the fact that you're missing the Jawa on the, on the picture. The other little tidbit that I – again, I never even heard of this until the last minute – has to do – with the typeset on the bottom left side of the poster on the white area border, where normally official Star Wars posters, especially movie posters, they use a certain type of font and they are all pretty much the same how they do it. Well, for this, apparently, for whatever crazy reason, they the machine that they used to create the font wasn't working right. They had to use a different machine and the machine was preset on a different font. And when they ran the the print, something also went wrong with the print job itself where the font was slightly slightly italicized, I believe, to, like leaning in one direction, slightly askew, if you will. And from what I understand, the original posters, not so much probably the reproductions, but the original posters that are out there, if somebody still owns one, has not only a different font and a slightly askew tilt to the font, which makes it, again, another weird little variant <laughs> to Star Wars posters, which is something they didn't even bother correcting. The poster does have the PG-13 rating on the on the corner, uh, the 20th Century Fox, and a little tag in the bottom that says Star Wars action figures courtesy of Kenner products, which is kind of a neat little, little, little tag on the bottom 
Uh, so yeah, this is a poster. Again, I just recently got it. It's a reproduction. Not very expensive. I, I don't know. Maybe it was 10 bucks or something, 10, 15 bucks. I don't remember. And uh, it is a great addition, you know, to my collection because not only is it is it celebrating Star Wars, but it's also celebrating the action figures. It's really, really interesting the fact that they chose, you know, to go in this direction with an anniversary poster to kind of, in a way, maybe they were cross promoting the toys. I mean, there were they might have been some hidden meaning <laughs> in this particular selection. Again, rather than go with a traditional artist, you know, plus the fact that remember that. And we talked about this before. There was so much art made already, and there was so much art that was unused or or minimally used. You know, different concepts for the one sheet poster that had come up already, uh, that were then not used and maybe used for I don't know a record cover or or, or, or a book or or some kind of a toy thing or something like that. But yeah, this this was one of those that ended up being completely, completely out of the norm and that they actually went to something new uh, instead of just recycling something old. Now, with that said, there were other concepts out there that didn't make it, but that later, as it happens with most Star Wars art, ends up somewhere else. Ralph McQuarrie, for example, did a R2-D2 holding a birthday cake sketch that later on, years later, was kind of reused for a different anniversary, which is the 10th anniversary. They kind of caught on to that concept and, and ran with it a little further. The actual Macquarie version of this one-year anniversary would have had R2-D2 holding a, a really big cake, and on top of the cake, they would have been 365 candles. So, yeah, that would have been something... <laughs> That would have been something else. Uh, now, granted, it's a drawing, so it's it kind of you know would have been easy. But yeah, that was a, a Macquarie concept that didn't make it for the first round, but eventually found its way, you know, in some other shape or form. But yeah, this is one of those posters. Again, if you're into poster collecting, it's a sight you will see every now and then. N- not so hard to find these days on uh, on eBay. Again, reproductions. You want the real thing, you got to spend some mega mega bucks. Now. The second poster that I have up today comes from an Empire Strikes Back series of posters. Now, if you guys remember a while back, I did a a show on the Star Wars collector glasses that are inspired by a certain batch of posters that I think Burger Chef or Burger King, I don't remember exactly at the time which company, was giving them out when you, you you, you buy a Coke, uh, you get the glass and you can buy a poster. They were giving away posters or something like that. And the glass art was based on these posters that were, you know, made to to promote Star Wars. Well, for Empire, uh, they also had Star Wars glasses. However, the selling of these glasses, just like Star Wars, was also cross-promoting these posters that they were giving away uh, or selling. I don't remember exactly uh, how how easy it was to get these posters back then. I do remember the glasses. Uh, I do remember the commercial for the glasses. I just don't remember them giving away the posters, or, or maybe certain stores had them, but it was a Coca-Cola thing. I believe it it had something to do with uh, Burger King, because by that time, I don't think Burger Chef was as popular as it was during like, a Star Wars time. But what you have here is a series of four posters, and uh, I'm looking here, and yes, they were given away for free when you bought Coca-Cola. The poster in the bottom actually says Coca-Cola. So, during the time of Empire Strikes Back, there's four posters. There's one of Vader and the carbon freezing chamber, and you see the characters in the bottom. You have one of Luke on the Tauntaun, and Han is also kind of holding his gun. 
one of Luke and Dagobah. You see Yoda and R2 in the background, and uh, Luke is holding his lightsaber up in the air. And one of Vader, primarily on Hoth, but also there's some picture, there's a picture, there's a section with Dagobah, and there's a section with Bespin, which is the one that I have hanging here in front of me. Now, one quick little article that I uh, was able to read does state that the way that the giveaway would work is that at the uh, restaurants, uh, you buy your soda, you get a free poster, and there's three free posters. Uh, the other three that I mentioned before, the one that I'm reviewing today, the Vader one, you got that one at the movie theater for free. So, yeah, that's, again, I, I don't remember this happening, but that's one possible way that they're, you know, that I'm, I'm finding out that that's how the distribution of the posters came about. These were done by Boris Vallego, who is a Peruvian artist, I believe. And they are very, very different. Now, what you have to keep in mind about Vallego, or Boris, because he signs his posters Boris, is that he has a certain style that was sought after, I guess, for, for the making of these posters. He's done a ton of, like, Tarzan and Conan. And the poster, if you guys remember the poster for Barbarella... You know, he does uh, a lot of art for the magazine Heavy Metal. He did some, apparently, some Ozzy Osbourne covers for his albums. Genesis, uh, Golden Axe 2, uh, video games. He's very much into the muscle, very sexy women, muscular men, uh, that style. If you Again, if you think of Conan art, that's his thing. Now, granted, for Star Wars, you really can't go that crazy. I mean, some of the stuff is, is really... <laughs> <laughs> it's really out there kind of stuff. Again, it's his style. But yeah, with Star Wars, he, he couldn't, you know, you can't put Luke, you know, without a shirt on, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> or Leia. But you do see a little bit, especially with the colors. He uses a, a, an interesting color palette. For the specific one I'm talking about right now, the Vader one with the crossing swords, what's interesting is that the, the lightsabers he's holding, they're both purple. <laughs> the light is purple, which, again, it's like, do these artists know exactly what they're doing <laughs> when they're picking colors and that sort of thing? Or are they doing it on purpose just to mess with you? Well, what's interesting is he's holding the two lightsabers up in the air, and they're crossing each other in the middle. It's like he got two lightsabers. Even the handles of the lightsabers don't look like the props. It looks like he just did it on his own. Like the poses are not exactly, his pose is not exactly a pose that you're familiar with from like a still of the film. On the other hand, you do have some X-Wings flying around. Okay, that's fine. You do have Luke on the left side of the poster on the Tauntaun. And that is a classic, you know, still shot. You know, if you if you think of the, the Luke on the Tauntaun photo that you see a lot on, um, you know, like a movie lobby card, if you guys even know what that is, that is that shot. Then on the other side, you got a shot of Luke in Dagobah with Yoda on his back, which, yes, I think I do remember a picture that's kind of like that. So, yeah, you can kind of say, yeah, he got it from that. Then on the on the middle bottom, you have, let's see, Lando is on one end. He looks a little out of proportion to me. His head and his body don't seem to match too well. Something is too big and something might be too small. I don't know if his head's too big or his... Oh. And, and, it, and I don't remember ever him posing in that manner, uh, at least on his... I think he kind of made a composite from different photos to create the Lando pose. Yoda is there uh, also uh, closer to the middle. And he is on this um, uh, sitting on a branch, which d does look familiar in terms of it, it could have came from a picture. 
Luke, that center, he's kind of kneeling on one knee, but he's got that draw. He's wearing his Bespin outfit, and you know the the shot of of him when he draws the gun, and he they shoot back at him, and and that that I, I think it even made it. It might have even made it to some of the action figures. I don't remember for sure, but anyway, that again looks to me like a composite because when he draws in that manner, he's standing up. Here he made him kneeling on one knee, uh, maybe for the purpose of the poster to be able to place him exactly where he wanted to place him. Han and Leia standing. She's holding a gun, and she's wearing what could be one of those Bespin outfits that she was given by Lando. She's not wearing the white. She's wearing that that rose, that that kind of like a, a dark rose with the robe, robe kind of thing. And Han is behind her, kind of holding her. Again, that looks very original because I don't remember any pose like that, really, coming from any still. Chewbacca's in the back holding a gun, looking forward. That could have came from somewhere. But what I don't like about Chewbacca is the fact that he's way too tall and he is his head is covering because he's kind of dead center but very tall he is covering Darth Vader's uh light box and when i see Darth Vader for some weird reason i i it's comfortable to me to see the light box the the red lights on the box on his chest but uh, chewie's head is right in front of it again i don't know what chewbacca's uh it could have came from uh, from some behind-the-scenes shots or something. I, I don't recognize that that particular pose. And the fact that Han and Leia are there and are so not reproduced, they're original. Now, with Leia, it looks practically nothing like her. Leia looks like some other model that he used or, or some other reference picture because it, it's, it's a woman, yes, but it doesn't have the Carrie Fisher look the way that the other characters in this poster are more accurate. Lando looks like Lando, Luke looks like Luke, Han looks like Han, but Leia does not look like Leia. And then on the left side, you have R2 and C-3PO, which could be from, well, it has to be from Hoth, because uh, C-3PO is in one piece, so he couldn't have been C-3PO from, from, from Bespin or, you know, forward. It could be from one of those scenes where C-3PO tells uh, R2 to switch off or anything like that, so that's what that looks like. Again, the color palette is very different. There's four of these. Uh, I can probably review some of the other ones in the future. But you do find this style in most of these other posters. Uh, Luke's uh, lightsaber is also the wrong color on a different poster. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, you're not looking for complete realism. And these artists were, were given, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of rope in terms of being able to do what they wanted. But Nevertheless, these are out there. You, I've, I've seen these. Originals are a little more expensive as usual. They're small posters. These are not uh, movie one sheets. These are, I don't know, two feet by a foot and a half, more or less. And and yet, th- these are more about the style. The style is what really pops out. Uh, you don't want just somebody who can recreate a picture. And then it's like, well, what's the difference between having a picture and a drawing of a picture. No, the, these guys, especially well, well, this particular artist, and you said his, his name is right there. Uh, he, he signs his paintings Boris, and it says Boris 80. So you know what year it came from. Then it has an Empire Strikes Back logo on the left bottom. It says an original poster from the Coca-Cola company, Lucasfilm, uh, you know, trademark 1980. You are getting a, a different perspective. I'm glad he didn't go crazy with his particular style because, again, 
his style is the Conan style. It's the Tarzan style. It's that that super, you know, the even like I was just joking before that you know he didn't have them all shirtless, but he also didn't change their proportions ridiculous in a ridiculous uh, bodybuildery kind of manner either, which you you figure that would might be tempting for him. Uh, you know, Luke is uh, he's got Yoda on his back, and you know you can see his arms, but he didn't give him like super crazy muscular arms either. Uh, so I'm glad he didn't do that. <laughs> But this particular art is is interesting also because, you know, it was commissioned for a specific purpose. The purpose of this art was to give away free posters when you buy a Coca-Cola product. Um, this isn't the type of art that you might see resurfacing on other products like you have with, with many other original Star Wars, uh, you know, any of the junk posters or the McQuarrie posters or you, you name it, all these other artists that we've talked about in the past. These had a specific purpose, and and you don't really see them coming back. I do not remember these being given out. I do remember the the glasses that I that I, I initially I might have bought a few, and then I ended up losing them. You know, they break throughout the years, but then within the last I don't know four or five years, actually no, that's not true. Within the past maybe six or seven years, I started recollecting them again and, and have a full set of all Star Wars Empire and Jedi glasses. But yeah, yeah, I don't remember these. Uh, you know, there are certain things that were just kind of went over my head. And you know, it was 1980. I I had just gotten to the to the states, and everything was hitting me <laughs> fast and furious. You know, the movie came out in May of '80, I think. So I remember barely remember how all of a sudden I'm back in Star Wars. It's like, wait a minute, Star Wars, Star Wars. Oh, the the, the toys I have, the, that bag of, of action figures. Wait, another movie? You know, it was it was kind of like that. Remember, no internet. I wasn't plugged into Starlog magazine yet. You know, Starlog would have been my my gateway to anything genre related, and I didn't hit Starlog until after Empire. So it, it took me a good year to be able to find a source of information that would tell me what's going on with this thing called Star Wars. But yeah, by then, you know, by 1980, Empire Strikes Back, 81. Raiders of Lost Ark, 82, the floodgates opened and the whole world just went crazy. <laughs> Blade Runner, Tron, E.T., you name it. All of the crazy, crazy genre things that make the foundation, you know, started to hit really, really hard. You know, I'm 12 years old at this moment. So that's, you know, how it all happened. But again, these posters, you can find them on, on eBay real ones uh reproductions the one i got the one the, the set that i got is actually printed on a thicker stock paper than i would ever imagine it's a different quality print it, it doesn't look glossy or shiny like a normal print would but i'm very happy with them because even though it's a different quality print and it doesn't look exactly probably like the, the real one because of the art style is so different it's acceptable as far as I can tell. And because I'm not too familiar with it, you know, because I never had it in the first place, you know, I'm looking at these going, oh, wow, these are, these are actually really cool. So yeah, this is another uh, Star Wars kind of offshoot side poster that if you're interested in, in, in these things, look them up because uh, every now and then you can get a good deal on the whole set, not just one. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Uh, we started off with uh, Ghost Directors and Alan Smithy, which is a really unusual, not too frequently heard of thing that happens, you know, with Hollywood films. But every now and then you're like, wait a minute, this something's not right here. And then when you start digging into, you know, the behind the scenes stuff, 
then you start to find out about how these things sometimes happen when certain directors all of a sudden has found out that they were really not that much in control of their films, not only from the producers or the studios, but guess what? You might have had other directors physically there, you know, doing some of their work too. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, directors that after they're done shooting or sometimes even while they're shooting, they're becoming so disillusioned with the product, with the interference, if you will, sometimes from a studio or, or some kind of maybe heavy handed producer that they want to disassociate themselves completely from a film. And I have a feeling these two occurrences might still happen here every now and then. I mean, we gave you some examples of some pretty current ones that versions or or bits and pieces of that was still happening and granted when a studio has so much clout and so much power they can kind of keep those stories quiet without it getting you know known but then years later sooner or later there's a book making of book or an unauthorized making of book or some interview that gets given to some publication and all of a sudden you're like whoa this is the type of crazy behind the scenes you know i, I always say the uh, the you know the making of the sausage part that you never really want to know man some of these behind the scenes stories they can make a movie just about those stories and then after that, we jumped over to the posters of the month this time around. We hit the uh, Coca-Cola Empire poster and we hit the one-year birthday Star Wars poster. Great posters for those who collect them. And, and even better is the story behind. So that's what I enjoy the most is the story behind how that particular poster was made and why certain styles or decisions or or design were made in that manner you know i love those stories and it's hard you know it's hard to find those things but i'm sure i'll have some more in the near future so on behalf of everybody thank you for listening and we will see you soon here at geek fest rants bye bye everybody Right now, in a neighborhood very close by, Burger Chef brings you The Empire Strikes Back. The Star Wars saga continues as Luke Skywalker, Yoda, their friends, and their enemies come alive in three original dramatic full-color posters. Get a new poster each week for an exciting low price when you buy a medium-sized Coca-Cola and any large sandwich only at Burger Chef. But The Empire Strikes Back again and again and again. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. <laughs>